Welcome to the 313th of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Kim Fortune, standing in for COVID Calls host, Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a cultural anthropologist who studies disaster and environmental health vulnerability. My co-host is James Adams, a cultural anthropologist specializing in the study of energy transition. Both of us are in the Department of Anthropology, University of California, Irvine. We're coming to you live from there. Today, we'll discuss how work towards a just energy transition has continued within the COVID-19 pandemic and within, within the now notorious Texas power grid failure in February, 2021. Before we go to our interview with activist and energy expert, Kaiba White, a short reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can also hear COVID Calls uh, from the archive anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, or Podbean. You can also follow COVID Calls on Twitter at the handle US of Disaster or COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, July 26, 2021, there were over 4 million global deaths from COVID-19, over 600,000 in the United States, and over 50,000 in the state of Texas. This deserves our continuing attention and analysis. It also deserves our continuing effort to work from within the pandemic. And this has been a special focus of COVID calls over the last year to document both the harms and suffering of COVID, but also the ways that people have worked within its constraints. Uh, And this is the focus of our call today, uh, a focus on how the work of moving away from fossil fuels and towards energy transition has continued in the city of Austin, Texas, and through the work of of Kaiba White. Uh, James? Sure. So Kaiba White is a real mover and a shaker in Austin's renewable energy and climate policy scene, where she contributes to policy research, online activism, grassroots organizing, and coalition building, as well as recruiting and overseeing interns. She has a strong strong background in social science and policy analysis, earning her bachelor's degree in sociology from Rice University in 2006, and her master's degree in urban and environmental policy and planning from Tufts University in 2009. Uh, Since 2012, she's been the energy policy expert and outreach specialist for the Texas Office of Public Citizen, a nonprofit consumer advocacy group. And she's also the president of Solar Austin, a local nonprofit seeking to accelerate a just and equitable transition to a strong, renewable powered economy. Kaiba also serves on the City of Austin's Resource Management Commission and has taken leadership roles in the development of Austin Energy's resource generation and climate protection plan, as well as the city's climate equity plan. I know Kayiba to be not only a passionate environmentalist, which she definitely is, but also an informed and astute critical thinker with deep commitments to energy's complex equity issues and to the principles of environmental justice. Uh, with that, let's bring Kayiba into the call. Um, so thank you uh, for joining us today, Kayiba. Uh, we're very well, very lucky to have you. Thank you. I really appreciate that warm welcome, and I'm happy to be here. Uh, this is a, a good opportunity to talk about the things that we have going on in Austin as they relate to 
the pandemic as, as well as our kind of energy and climate priorities. Awesome. Well, I'm glad this is a mutually uh, a great opportunity for this conversation, and I'm excited for what we'll discuss coming forward. Uh, to begin, um, can you just sort of like tell us uh, a little bit about the general situation in Austin and how the uh, pandemic has unfolded there? Well, um, you know, there's been a lot of ups and downs uh, in Austin, uh, as there have been throughout the state of Texas and really around the world. Um, and unfortunately, right now, Austin is experiencing a significant surge in, in cases and in hospitalizations and has now entered stage uh, four, and that's out of five. So um, the city is is now, you know, encouraging everyone to wear masks, uh, even if you are vaccinated, because we know that while the vaccines are, you know, they, they are good, they do uh, stop most cases, they do not stop all cases. And um, we are seeing those breakthrough cases in Austin right. as folks are everywhere. And um, unfortunately, not enough people have got vaccinated to stop this pandemic. And so, you know, we're we're uh, reaping the consequences of that right now, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. So on a, an unfortunate, like sort of heading back downward into the deep pandemic at this moment. I'm, I'm sorry. Can you say that again? Sorry. Yeah. So like heading like where there have been some improvements at different times, like sort of now heading back down into uh, sort of shutting things down again, more restrictive measures, um, not square one, but, you know, a few steps back. Yeah, you know, uh, I think uh, if we if we had a different state government, we probably would be talking about more restrictive measures. Um, as it is in Texas, uh, cities are very limited on what they can legally require. Um, so, you know, in Austin, it, it does come in the form of of guidance. Um, I, you know, okay. I'm hopeful that yeah. a lot of businesses will take that guidance and therefore will have an effect on some you know, individual behaviors. But yeah, I think it's it's yeah. um, a kind of a sad moment that we're re-entering, um, you know, these kind of higher levels of uh, cases and illness that, you know, we could be preventing at this, at this stage. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah, so... <laughs> I, I, as a sort of a, a different spin, um, I'm also sort of curious. One of the questions we often ask uh, has been, what do you have, like, what has, like, uh, impacted you during this, uh, your experience of the pandemic? So, like, what is maybe one of your strongest memories or associations with the pandemic as it's uh, taken place in the, in the past 18 months or so? Well, uh, when the pandemic started, I was, uh, I guess, in my entering my third trimester of pregnancy. Yeah. So definitely, I think the the strongest moment for me was, uh, you know, reading about what was going on in New York City and about, you know, pregnant women having to give birth without, you know, any partner or support person there with them. And that was pretty scary for me on a personal level. Um, and I'm grateful that I did not have to go through that. Um, that my husband was there for the birth of our son and that neither of us contracted COVID and, you know, none of the three of us did um, and we've remained safe. But, um, you know, having a now 13-month-old uh, baby, 13 months today, 
Um, obviously, he is unvaccinated. And so that remains uh, key in my mind when I'm thinking about uh, the pandemic in general and certainly about my behavior and, you know, the behavior of the people that I come into contact with. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What a time to, you know, be going through these stages that are so exciting and that everyone's supposed to be, you know, always looks forward to. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, so outside, uh, like outside of like the more personal level, I also know, uh, Kaiba, you're like, as I said in the introduction, you wear many hats in uh, the Austin scene, uh, extensively involved uh, in uh, renewable energy and in climate policy uh, and in, like trying to organize around environmental justice. And I'm just sort of wondering, can you speak a little bit about how COVID has unfolded in these all these worlds that you're a part of and how that's impacted sort of like your day to day? In, in these efforts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been such a dramatic change from, you know, my day to day was pre-COVID was uh, a lot of, you know, moving around from one in-person meeting to the next, be it with a group of advocates or a neighborhood organization or individual community members or leaders um, or elected officials or city staffers, um, you know, all of those meetings were all happening in person and, you know, they all shifted to remote everything uh, yeah. and pretty much everything is all of the, in my work world right now has, has remained remote. There have sure. been some things um, that have shifted to in person, um, but that, that was such a huge change and it brought some challenges, but it did also bring some opportunities. Sure. Um, you know, I think, uh, I saw that in some cases, I think there were people who uh, weren't participating as much when things were in person because they maybe sure, didn't yeah. have the time to get there or they didn't have the ability to get across town to a meeting or whatever. Um, so having a remote option, I think, you know, has the potential to expand participation mm-hmm. for some people. And I think it did do that. Um, when it comes to my work with Solar Austin, um, you know, we were just, uh, you know, kind of working on a, a pilot program for uh, students of color and women students to get paid internships in the clean energy industry. And, you know, we thought that those were all going to be in person. And instead, mm-hmm. we pivoted and they were remote internships. And, um you know, we were kind of worried about that, but it actually has worked out really well for the most part. And, um, you know, now we're kind of into a hybrid model where some are remote and some are in person. Um, and I think that there's a lot of value in having that flexibility. Sure. Could you, could you say a little more about that? I know that many of listeners of COVID calls are also educators. And so the kind of uh, the way that you built energy and process in the intern program when it was fully virtual, going to hybrid, what what worked and what did you learn from the process of uh, building the program? Yeah, I think one of the key things is communication. Um, you know, when you're in person, there's a lot more organic communication. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen that throughout all aspects of my work that 
um, you know, when you show up to a meeting in person, you you might get there a little early and you have some conversations. You might stay a little late. You have some more conversations. It's not just about the official business. And I think the same uh, is true to a certain extent with our Solar Austin internship program. You don't have that as much organic interaction. So you have to really uh, be intentional about connecting with people. And you can do that over the phone. You can do it via text. You can do it over, you know, video meetings, whatever. Um, but you do have to be a little more intentional about it. And in terms of, you know, the internship program specifically, one of the things that we um, have done is really try to prepare the students for, you know, what kind of proper etiquette and behavior is when, when doing a remote internship so that they, you know, do take it as seriously as they would if they were in person. Sure. Um, and then also, you know, talking with the employers about how to try to integrate those interns even in a remote environment. So how to, you know, make sure that they're setting up meetings so that some of that networking that is so valuable in an internship experience can still happen. Yeah. What What are your goals with the internship program? And I'll foreshadow a little, I'm interested in what you consider the kind of skills that you want them to build, but also the kind of scenarios you see them entering, especially amidst all the contentions and contestations of energy transition. How do you prepare them for the space they'll work in as much as the work itself? Yeah, so I guess first, our goal with the program is to improve diversity and equity and inclusion within the clean energy industry, because we see that, you know, while there is some level of diversity, there's still disproportionate, you know, male, white workforce there. And these are good jobs. It's a growing industry. And yeah. one of, you know, I think the important things that we need to keep in mind as we're working for climate justice is that we don't, you know, we cannot recreate the, you know, problematic systems just in a different industry. So yes. we need to give everybody the opportunity to benefit from clean energy. And, you know, a big part of that is the jobs themselves. Um, so we are trying to set students up to actually have that foot in the door that is so key to kind of furthering your career. A lot of times these students are getting a great educational background, and so they have a lot of skills to offer, but they might not know anybody who works in clean energy. They, you know, would just be kind of applying blind and, um, and in a way, they still are, but they're going through our program, which is specifically tailored um, to recruit those demographics, although anybody is welcome to apply. And of course, we consider all applicants, um, but we do also provide additional support. So we provide multiple layers of mentoring throughout the program mm -hmm. to try to ensure success, which you know, does take some work sometimes with an intern. There's all kinds of ways that an internship can kind of go awry. And so we're there to yeah. to try to step in and make it successful for the intern and for the company, because we believe that the companies also are going to ben benefit from, you know, having a more diverse workforce. Yeah, yeah I, I remember um, in, uh, you hosted a happy hour for uh, Solar Austin that where you discussed the internship program, right? Um, and I remembered yes. in that, uh, that the topic was also brought up that how much of a learning experience it was for these companies, right? Um, 
uh, how like taking what what it means to take on an intern, uh, especially, and then like what it means how how to um, you know like bring in entry level uh, sort of like workforce and um, sort of like fulfill their commitments to uh, this uh, you know like uh, commitment to equity that they signed up for, right? Um, how like it, the learning happens on both sides and both ends. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, in most cases, the the supervisors, those that are, that are involved on the company side are seeing that as a value. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it takes some work, but at the end of the day, they're getting something for that learning experience. Yeah. And, and we see that many of them are, you know, actually then going on to hire these interns into full-time right. positions, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah. You know, I think it's especially important that you figured out how to sustain this during the pandemic because it's so clear the way that the workforce implications of the pandemic have been so hard on women in particular. And so it's it's like, you know, it's a you found a countervailing way uh, to address the pandemic through the internship program, even if indirectly. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's been very interesting in that, uh, you know, when we initially applied for the grant that funded the pilot uh, program last summer, um, you know, obviously there were, were still plenty of conversations about, you know, racial equity going on, which is, is why mm-hmm. the grant existed. But it was before this last, you know, kind of round of interest mm-hmm. that, you know, was brought on by George Floyd's death and uh, so many other mm-hmm. uh, similar events since then, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ended up just, you know, working out that our program was kind of perfectly poised to, um, you know, really be a response to that as well mm-hmm. as the pandemic and a certain, you know, little yeah. niche that we're focused on. Uh, Kim, you mentioned uh, the impact that COVID has had on the workforce. And um, so that that like brings to mind for me the topic of energy vulnerability or energy poverty and uh, the way that uh, COVID-19 has sort of exacerbated uh, the uh, energy burdens for people with more limited incomes. Um, and uh, Kaiba, I also know that uh, you like were part of a, a coalition of groups that co-authored an, a letter to Governor Abbott, right, talking about a moratorium on disconnections. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm wondering, can you share a little bit about what you learned um, through the pandemic about energy poverty or energy vulnerability, and uh, maybe like some of the you know the best practices for how to address these problems moving forward? Yeah. Um, well, you know, definitely, I think, you know, like you said, the, the pandemic did exacerbate existing problems. So it's mm-hmm. it's yeah. kind of, uh, you know, similar to many climate impacts in that way. Sure. Whatever problems you have underlying when you have a yeah. crisis, you're just going to see them kind of on steroids. And, uh, you know, when you have, let's look at Austin, you have, yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. high income uh, mm-hmm. residents, a lot of folks who have pretty well-paying jobs that maybe they were able, a lot of times those jobs were able to switch to remote work and um, be relatively unaffected. Um, But at the same time, you have a lot of lower income workers who are in some way connected to the service industry. And of course, that was what has been hardest hit is, you know, all of the the bars and the restaurants and the music venues uh, and, you know, the music 
music industry in general, um, you know, in Austin. Uh, And, you know, it's not just, you know, the owners of those establishments. Um, It it is, you know, everybody from, you know, the wait staff to the, you know, janitorial crews, you know, all of the kind of lower income, uh, non salaried kind of employees. And we see that then those are the folks who don't have a safety net more often than not. And when it comes to energy, uh, you know, they maybe have some of them maybe have struggled in the past with bills. Some of them maybe haven't uh, actually had a problem with their bills in the past, but they they didn't have enough of a cushion to get them through. And, you know, thankfully, the Austin Energy, which is, you know, our municipally Mm -hmm. owned utility, um, did a good job. Austin Energy and the Austin City Council, which controls it, you know, acted pretty quickly to, uh, you know, stop any disconnections and provide additional support actually to to help folks pay their bills and, and make sure that that people were not faced with, you know, a pandemic without electricity and running water. But we saw something very different happening other, you know, in other parts of the state. And, um, you know, some utilities eventually came around and and the Public Utility Commission took some action, but Mm -hmm. it fell well short of what was needed. And now here we are, the pandemic is still here. Um, it's, yeah. it's not a thing of the past, and yet, um, you know, most of those programs have been eliminated, and right. people are yeah. going to be hurting in the months to come. Right. Just for the sake of our listeners, I know. So you mentioned that Austin Energy is municipally owned. Um, can you just talk a little bit about like the different um, ways that utilities are structured in Texas? I know, like Austin, you know, is is somewhat not in. It's not alone, but it's somewhat unique as uh, compared to some different areas that have like less democratic control over their utilities. And maybe you can help us, you know, explain that a little bit. Yeah. So I guess we kind of have four uh, four different structures in Texas, just to keep it nice and confusing for folks. Um, <laughs> and there are, you know, a large uh, number of municipally owned utilities. Um, most of them are in, you know, smaller uh, towns throughout Texas, but uh the San Antonio utility CPS Energy is the largest, followed by Austin Energy. Then there are a few others like Denton Electric and Garland Power and Light that are kind of in the the middle range. And then there are a whole bunch of the the small ones. Those ones are controlled by their city councils. And then I guess the kind of next most democratically controlled um, are the electric co-ops. So mm-hmm. in the Austin area, we have the Petronellis Electric Co-op to the west and the Blue Bonnet Electric Co-op to the east. But I think there's uh, 50 or 70, I forget, a large number. There are dozens of those throughout the state as well. And, um, you know, they are governed by boards of directors that are elected by their members. Um, I can go into how how democratic or not that is at another time. But um then the other two options are, you know, within the ERCOT area, um, the retail electric providers, which are just, you know, for-profit companies that are serving all of the, you know, most of the customers in the DFW area, all of the customers in the Houston area and, and a whole bunch of other parts of the state. And then we have some parts of the state that are outside of ERCOT 
and they mm-hmm. are generally served by vertically integrated utilities, but that are for profit. So, you know, El Paso Electric, for example, uh, right. is, you know, a for profit company that still has a monopoly. Right. Yeah. So quite a patchwork of, yeah. of different models, different ways of, of structuring utilities, um, which I think in your letter emphasizes the role the, the 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 role that the state needs to take in order to sort of like have a, a a more blanket coverage of protection right yeah absolutely i mean the one of the challenges that we faced um right from the beginning was just finding out what all these different utilities were doing or not right. doing when it comes yeah. to you know having a moratorium on disconnections or providing payment policy uh, pl- payment plans or you know any other types of assistance um you know, there's there wasn't just a single database where you could go to find that. We were making calls and emails to each utility and uh, trying to look at their websites. But what we found was um, that most of them didn't actually post anything publicly. So especially the yeah. electric co-ops, um, when we called, they might say, oh, we offer a play- payment plan. We're, we're not disconnecting people. But they didn't publish that anywhere. So, um, yeah. Yeah, well, there's a lot to, to um, I think, be improved on there. Is, is there any kind of database now, or are they supposed to be publishing these policies per law, or is, is some of the work in a setting laws in place that would require this kind of data collection? Yeah, there's, there is no requirement, unfortunately, and there's still no database. Um, you know, what we were able to do was um, kind of get a snapshot uh, mm-hmm. that was as complete as we could get it at the time. Um, but, you know, I couldn't speak now to, you know, which utilities are offering payment plans or disconnecting customers because I would have to call them all back up again. Is Do you think there's anyone in state government who considers that their responsibility to know these differences? Hmm. And then bundled into that is... Do you see a pattern across these in terms of their willingness and capacity to deal with vulnerable communities in their constituencies? You mean within the the electric co-ops or well, across the four types of mm-hmm. providers? Well, um, you know, what we saw from the Public Utility Commission was that, uh, their view was that they only had jurisdiction to deal with the uh, basically the private companies, the you know the retail electric providers, and you know they also um, did include those vertically integrated um, companies outside of ERCOT in in some of their orders, mm-hmm. um, but not all of them. So there was even within what the PUC did take action on, it was a bit of a patchwork, but. Mm-hmm. Um, they, their view was that they didn't have any jurisdiction to, you know, tell the electric co-ops or the municipally owned utilities, you know, what they should do when it comes to disconnections or payment plans. So I think uh, probably, you know, it would take legislation to change that. I think there's some disagreement on whether or not that's an accurate kind of reading of the statute, you know, whether they, the PUC maybe could have taken action. Um, so, you know, maybe if we had different state level leadership uh, that had appointed different PUC commissioners, maybe we'd have a different outcome there. But I think 
right now with with this leadership, this is what we can expect going forward. In Texas, is there a crosstalk with people in other states, either because they're dealing with similar configurations of uh, electricity provision plus state apparatus or different? But is there, how are you learning kind of beyond Texas borders and how relevant is to your, is it to your work locally? Yeah. um, You know, when we were a little bit, you know, we've kind of uh, shifted focus to other things um, in more recent months. But when I was more focused on that, I was trying to learn what was going on in other states. And certainly there are other states that were in similarly bad situations as as Texas was. Um, and And it really, you know, unfortunately just comes down to advocacy to try to change that there's not a there's not an easy fix um it 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 requires um you know enough people and and maybe enough of the right people speaking up and, and demanding a policy change So I, there's a bit of discussion about like data and transparency, and uh, I know that uh, maybe I w- this can like facilitate a switch to talking more about the, par- the power crisis as well. Um, so I know uh, you've been quoted in a couple different places, Kaiba, in your commentary um, on the Texas power crisis about uh, as like this is calling for like a greater need for uh, transparency. Can you? Um, maybe talk a little bit about more about what you were trying to um, unpack there and um, maybe like the way the role that data might uh, have in uh, sort of like making sure that we have uh, a way of preventing another sort of crisis happening. Well, um, you know, I don't, I don't think the uh, kind of data access alone is, is uh, sure. you know, the, the answer to preventing a, a crisis, but yeah. um Certainly, there are there there were certain pieces of data that people became very interested in uh, during and after the winter storm Yuri. Uh, I think probably the the piece of data that folks were most interested in, um, but we might not ever get, is you know about these uh, you know what feeder am I on, what circuit am I on, why sure, was yeah. my circuit off while well, my you know neighbors down the street had power. Um, you know, uh, I don't necessarily think that it's wrong for that data um, to not be put out there because th- th- there are probably some security and other uh, challenges with that. Um, okay. But there was also, you know, I think uh, a lot of um, it, it kind of exposed how opaque, I guess, especially the natural gas industry is mm-hmm. um, in the natural gas markets, of course, you know. You had a lot of power plants that uh, they thought they had firm contracts. Now, some of them did not. Some of those power plants were rolling the ice and trying to save money by not having a firm contract, and then they didn't have access to to gas to you know to run their power plant. But there were others who did have firm contracts, and those contracts were just basically thrown out the window. 
Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the natural gas companies would say that, you know, well, they, they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't make good on those contracts. Sure. But meanwhile, that there was gas at, at some points in the, in the crisis that was being sold out of state. So, um, and, and at quite a, a hefty cost. So, or a hefty profit for the companies. Uh, but I think it would take, it's not impossible, I'm sure, to track that down, but it would be um, a real challenge to figure out kind of, you know, well, were there contracts that should have been, you know, made good on that weren't, um, but were just kind of at the mercy of, of the industry because it's so unregulated. Just as, as one example, but I, you know, I think sure. there was also, um, you know, a lack of transparency about weatherization of power plants. You know, mm-hmm. um, there were, you know, guidance being put out, and uh, you know, some internal tracking happening, but you know, the, nothing that was being published in any way that that people could could know what the level of risk was. What about the um, the arguments that the power crisis was in part due to the unreliability of renewable energy sources, which certainly got covered in press we were seeing in California? And I know that's, um, you know, on one hand, easy for someone like you to kind of correct the meth- uh, the record, but just tell us what that why was it possible to make that argument at this point? What does it teach us about the kinds of um, public understanding and communication we need to build going forward? Well, I think it was possible to make that argument because, you know, fossil fuel advocates have been pushing this message of renewable energy being unreliable for years. Mm -hmm. So they had you know, a certain audience that was primed to believe that because they had already heard it so many times. So they didn't even bother some, some folks did not bother to, you know, check the facts before just assuming that, yeah, of course, this was the fault of wind and solar, because we know it's unreliable. Um, You know, that is not actually the fact of the situation. The facts were that at that time, in the winter, what is expected to be producing is predominantly natural gas. And that it, so it, it was a failure of the natural gas industry all the way from the wellhead to power production. That said, I, I do think that there is a lot to be improved on within, you know, renewable energy production. And I think that actually the renewable energy industries, wind, solar, batteries, um, are are now, as a result, looking to be even more reliable and, uh, you know, have more of a responsibility for, you know, keeping the grid functioning, you know, not just in the summer, which I think they're pretty well poised to do, but but hopefully also in the winter as well. You know, that wasn't the role that they were really prepared for and mm-hmm. um, were not, you know, ERCOT was not expecting there to be a lot of solar or a lot of wind. And so there was at least as much as they were planning on. So in that respect, they delivered as expected, whereas the natural gas, you know, power plants came well under. And that's why we didn't 
have the needed, sure. the needed power. Does having the renewable energy industry and advocates in the mix, um, has it changed the conversation about the kind of social contract of the grid? Like, you know, who's responsible for basic services and basic infrastructure? And are they, I guess what, and I know they're very diverse within the industry, but, you know, what kind of um, actor are they as an industry, as a kind of sector block? Hmm. <laughs> you know, that's that's a difficult question for, for me to even know the answer to um, because I don't I don't think they're they're one one type of actor necessarily. But um, I do think that um, by and large, you know, wind and solar companies want to be seen and want to actually be part of the solution you know, to, to climate change, to, to air pollution, to reliability, to all, you know, to all those things. And so it's in their self-interest to do everything that they can to make sure that their facilities are able to produce, you know, as much as possible whenever uh, energy is needed. Um, but, you know, I, I did kind of on a related note, um, really see a just very interesting dynamic um, as this, the storm was ongoing and right after that it seemed like a lot of uh, leaders, a lot of elected officials, um, you know, especially in the Texas state government, seemed to kind of assume that there was actually a lot more centralized control of the system, mm -hmm. that there was a lot more um, kind of socialized responsibility than there actually was. And, you know, I found that very interesting, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from a, you know, kind of conservative, uh, you know, yeah. anti-socialist um, body that, you know, they didn't just, they weren't just advocating, they weren't advocating for a change towards greater socialism initially. They, they seemed to think that it already existed, <laughs> that there already was a system in place to ensure that, um, you know, that everybody was doing what they were supposed to do in terms of weatherizing their power plants and producing energy. But that's not the system that we have set up here in Texas. Uh, yeah. You know, we have went, pretty far in the direction of free market and right. um you know you're gonna you're gonna have some slip-ups if that's the ethos mm -hmm. that you're working under you know that reminds me of working at the grassroots in around fence line communities and hazardous wet waste sites and the profound disappointment so many people had that the epa wasn't taking care of things like it didn't and, you know, that kind of moment of failed trust was really constitutive of the kind of um, what drove a, a you know, certain generation of activists. And it's still really, it's hard to work. It's both, it's correct and really hard to work with as, you know, as a kind of context for change. And it's interesting to think of the power crisis kind of bringing that kind of that to the fore. Did yeah. it, um, how did it, um, how did the COVID pandemic and the power crisis mirror or exacerbate each other or just run by side by side? I mean, is, and I know that's a huge high level question, but how have you thought about that? Oh, definitely. I mean, the fact that we, you know, were 
in the COVID pandemic at a time when people needed each other uh, in a very kind of physical way uh, was made it made it very difficult. You know, Um, we had neighbors that were without power, you know, literally a five minute walk down the street. Um, And, you know, there was only so much, uh, you know, that, that folks could do for each other, you know, there was charging things up and providing water. And, you know, there was one person that, that we, well, actually a couple that we did invite to stay with us, they ended up declining um, because they didn't want to put us at risk. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a difficult situation to be in where you have to yeah. choose between, um, you know, are you, are you putting yourself at risk of a possibly deadly disease or putting somebody else at risk? Um, or, you know, do you huddle up freezing cold in your home? And that, that was just the very real situation that p- people were faced with. And a lot of folks did have to get together in, in ways that weren't, you know, considered COVID safe because they just couldn't, you know, they could not live in their homes. And, uh, you know, we need to, we need to think about that going forward. But I, you know, even looking at it now, it's one of those problems that I'm not sure that there's a full solution for. Yeah. What, what was the information circulation during the freeze? Like, how did you know what was going on in, in any way? I mean, were you getting like pushed out messages from the city um, or not, and how did it run in parallel, or was it the same system utilized to encourage people to social distance and test and vaccinate? And like, were the were the two disasters treated as um, kindred by the system? Um, gosh, I'm trying to remember. I think that we received maybe some text messages um, from the city. But there wasn't a lot of communication. Um, I remember, you know, receiving, I can't remember if it was an email or a text message uh, that was, you know, partway through the week and uh, the Austin water system was under a lot of stress. And um, I remember this message because it said to, you know, please stop dripping your faucets. Mm. And of course, it was still, you know, getting, you know, well below freezing and, um, you know, <laughs> it stuck in my mind because that seemed like really bad advice. <laughs> But I don't remember a lot of messages coming in. And of course, that has been one of the big criticisms is, you know, in general, not just in Austin, but across the state, you know, a relative lack of communication um, to to customers so they could know what to expect. Now, I think part of the challenge was, was that utilities didn't know what to expect. Now, they could have provided more information than they did, but there was just a lot of uncertainty, you know even I think at the highest levels. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I was really, um, you know, moved by this uh, recent study that I got a hold of uh, by Caravallo et al., um, where they determined that across the state of Texas, communities of color were four times as likely to experience an outage um, as opposed to predominantly white communities. Um, and I know you said that, you know, like they 
there's not clear or like very precise or granular data about like which sort of circuits were shut off and like how those are connected and like how those decisions were made. But I, I know you've given some like uh, discussion of like generally what the book says, like how those decisions might be made uh, in these contexts. Um, but then thinking about how that manifested in real time and like the way that these burdens were sort of un unequal, uh, unequally shared across, um, you know, clearly across racial uh, communities, racial barriers, racial divides. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, if you can give us a little bit of information about like what that might mean for um, establishing something like energy justice uh, moving forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, first day, it's, it, you know, knowing, knowing that fact, it's, um, you know, questions come to mind of, you know, wanting to know other pieces of data that might be connected to that. So, you sure. know, for example, what is the distribution of, you know, uh, the so-called kind of critical infrastructure that was supposed to kind of be protected from, you know, cut off during, during these types of events? Because what we are told by the utilities is that, you know, if you're on the same circuit or feeder, as something that's a critical load, like a hospital or a fire station or, you know, some other list of uh, kind of facilities, then, you know, you also would have power. And if you weren't, then your power would probably be shut off for the duration because there was not any capacity to move those outages around. Um, so this may, again, to kind of the issue of ex exacerbating existing inequities, might speak to perhaps it wasn't that the utility companies targeted right. communities yeah. of color, and maybe the communities of color have fewer of these mm. amenities, things right. like hospitals in their communities. And, you know, I don't know that. Um, but uh, that right. would be a question that I would love to see more research on. Um, it, you know, not that it excuses it at all. Um mm. But I think it would just speak to, well, probably we need maybe some more fire stations and some more hospitals or whatever else in those communities. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's not um, that's not the answer to the electricity shutoffs. I, you know, I believe that the answer there is that we need to use our our smart meters to more accurately target, you know, the facilities that must stay on all the time so that we can have uh capacity to you know move outages from from one area to another um and and i think that that is you know looking at, at you know back to your question about you know kind of climate justice mm -hmm. um we need to expect that we are going to have more disasters we are going to have more stress on our systems so we are not going to entirely avoid um, these type of hardships, but what we can do is improve how we manage them and make sure that, you know, we are spreading our resources around as best that we can to help as many people as we can. And, you know, looking at, you know, power outages, power outages are always a nuisance, but it's when they go on for a prolonged period of time that they become deadly. and. I did not need to have power 100% of the time in order to stay alive. And some of the folks who, you know, froze to death during the storm, essentially, you know, died of hypothermia, I shouldn't say froze to death, but, you know, died of hypothermia, um, 
I would have been very happy to, you know, have power half of the time, a quarter of the time, whatever was equitable so that, you know, my fellow Texans could live. And I think that, you know, probably most people would agree with that. Um, But we don't have any policy that is, you know, demanding that that solution be implemented. What is the state of the smart grid and is the limit technological? Is it policy driving the technology? Is it how expensive is it? Is the engineering there? Like what's between us and that? Yeah, all good questions. Um, I think uh, certainly it's technologically possible. Um, And I say that because, you know, honestly, this is not an area where I have done extensive research, but, you know, when this came up, I immediately started just kind of looking around for where else might utilities be doing using their their smart meters more effectively. And right away, I found uh, a great example. It's actually a utility in South Africa, of all places, that um, in order to manage you know power shortages there, they actually use their smart meters to set a limit say, all right, we have enough, we have this amount of energy for each household. So if you can stay within that limit, then your power stays on. If you go beyond that limit, then your power gets cut off, you know, when there's a shortage, which is a very, you know, fair if you think about it, right? So everybody could have enough to keep, you know, their essentials going, but nobody gets to kind of be an energy hog, Hmm. Um, you know, when when there's not enough to go around. Um, So, Looking at that, I think, well, all right, that t- technology exists. Right. Um, and if they can do it in South Africa, surely we could do it here. I don't know what the cost is. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think the utilities to, you know, to the policy question are not being pushed to figure out exactly what the cost is, how long it would take to implement. But we do know that most folks have smart meters already installed at their homes. So probably the physical infrastructure is there and most of what is needed is software improvements. Hmm. And that doesn't mean that it's not, uh, you know, a significant investment, but look at how much we just, you know, lost. Billions, yeah. Yeah. So I think it would be money well spent Mm -hmm. to make it so that we could manage the next crisis in a much more effective way. I, I think next generation environmental justice work needs to include these kinds of very specific proposals because Mm -hmm. there's, you know, in the main, we know we've got a big problem, but actually figuring out these infrastructural investments that would change the order of things. Um, And so it's, it's really nice to have this example um, to work with. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, I I think, uh, you know, we, we need, we need so much when it comes to this fight. We need folks who are out there um, really kind of working, you know, deep in the community and uh, people who are, you know, providing inspiration. And um, and we also need a little bit of kind of like policy and technical wonkiness. And I think I, I live somewhere in between all of those. Yeah. And uh, really, um, you know, I, I think we need to be able to, bring specific solutions, but in a way that can connect with people, because some of these things, 
seem really boring until, you know, (laughs) folks realize that like, oh, this is the way that like I could have not been freezing in my home for four days. Right. Is there, um, I know that everywhere, but especially in Texas, you've got vested interests, money-making interests that make it more difficult to move towards just transition. But are there also um, kind of paradigms in the sincere community, you know, that's, you know, trying to make things better that you worry about, that you worry that it's excluding possible pathways or reproducing um, um, lack of inclusiveness within, um, you know, what the transition is or kind of what are the, in the best articulations of where you're going, what are the things that kind of keep you up at night? Mm. Oh boy. Um, You know, uh, I think, I think that there are, there are a lot of people that are trying to do the right thing. There are a lot of people who are also just, you know, trying to make money, however that might be. And, you know, you find, you know, people that are, you know, just trying to make money in, in kind of all industries. Um, so, you know, I, and for that matter, you, you find people who want to do the right thing in all industries. Um, but, you know, some of the things that, you know, when it comes to address just transition that I, you know, kind of worry about, I guess, especially in Texas are things like carbon capture and storage and um, how that is sometimes put forward as a, solution, um, you know, especially for fossil fuel industries. And, you know, it might possibly deal with part of the problem as it relates to climate change, but it doesn't address so many other associated problems with air quality and water pollution and, uh, you know, just a lot of kind of other things that have a really negative effect on, you know, health and well-being in our communities. so, you know, I think that's that's one of those things. Um, and I think that sometimes, you know, there are, you know, there are environmental ag- advocates, there are affordability advocates, low income advocates. Um, and, you know, when things are working the best, we all work together and we're all uh, trying to you know, do what will be good in the short term and the long term for for people in general. Um, but sometimes I think, you know, it is possible to start kind of splintering the factions mm-hmm. and, um, you know, making it seem, I think, incorrectly that, you know, clean energy solutions, climate solutions are, uh, you know, are unaffordable and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and therefore problematic. Um you know, I think the the more data that we get out there, we we see that actually what is really unaffordable is the climate crisis, and we see that with winter storm Yuri. We see that time and again with the floods and the droughts, yes. and you know everything that comes along with the climate crisis uh, that d- does hit poor people and people of color the worst, and. Um, you know, in a way that it is often, you know, seems like it's just the kind of, you know, natural disaster of the day, but um, it's really, it's an, unna- it's, it's one unnatural disaster after another and we, and we can't afford it. So um, yeah, I, I, my hope is that more and more those of us who are, 
you know, really sincere about trying to do what's good for you know the people of Texas and, and beyond, you know, we'll keep working together because I think that is the key to our success. Do you, both within the COVID pandemic and the power grid crisis, was there um, cross-agency, cross-issue work at a higher order than you'd seen before where people in health, people in environment, people in housing, because from what I've observed as a researcher, there's still pretty stunning silos that separate the work. And um, I don't know, have you seen any kind of shift in either interest or capacity in that regard? I think it depends on where you look. Um, I think there are still a lot of you know silos in, in those areas that you just named. Um, but, you know, I think there you know, is also a recognition that there, that these issues are interconnected. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for example, with the Austin Climate Equity Plan, which hasn't been officially adopted, but hopefully will be uh, in September, um, I think that plan really kind of, you know, puts that truth front and center that, you know, health and racial equity and, climate change, that these are all intertwined and we need to be taking care of our community as a whole if we're going to be uh, making progress at all. And yeah. so I think, you know, that's where you see like, okay, the, the Austin Office of Sustainability and others within the city of Austin are recognizing that. And I, I think you you see, start to see that in some mm -hmm. other cities as well. Um but, you know, I, I think like at the state level in Texas and, you know, still in a lot of places, yeah, we haven't quite got there yet. Do you think that all of the attention to disproportionate burden um, of COVID and air pollution and all these burdens in communities of color that, that have come to the or been made more visible in the last two years, has it made it more possible to center these things in a plan like the climate plan in Austin? Or was it kind of going there anyway? And it. Well, I think in Austin, things are moving that direction anyway. Um, but, you know, I think it, it kind of bolstered the momentum that we had going there. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. You know, I've seen some polling data that, you know, looks at, you know, when, when people know that or when you message on the fact that, you know, impacts, environmental impacts are maybe disproportionately borne by people of color, um, you know, it does very different things to different people. You know, if you are already kind of predisposed to care about one or both of those issues, then you probably care even more. And uh, if you're not, then it could actually can actually push people in the other direction. Um, mm -hmm you know, of saying like, well, this is a thing that it, that affects somebody else that I maybe do or don't care about. Um, but I, you know, I think uh, kind of regardless, it is the truth and we need to keep talking about it and, you know, doing what we can to build momentum wherever we can to, you know, deal with these challenges in an intersectional way because there's just not, another viable alternative, I don't think. Right. I mean, we're, we're talking about the frontline communities. They're going to be impacted, but yeah. everyone's going to be impacted, right? I mean, but th that doesn't mean that we should um, 
you know, it does mean we should center those who are going to be on the front line. Right. But, uh, yeah, that logic of like, it's not my problem. I, uh, that's, that's surprising and, and unsettling. It's, 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 it's an interesting challenge to think about the way the kind of foregrounding of the racial equity issues in the environment and energy domain brings with it the, the antagonisms around those right. issues that will be part of the next phase of work. Um, a last question I have for you, and James might have another too, is I've been following uh, the Biden administration's promise of pursuing environmental justice across agencies, across policies, and it's impressive what's promised. Um, and I'm keen to see kind of what it begins to look like on the ground. What What's been the reception to that in Texas? And do you, is it going to give you space to work or is it going to almost cloud it with the specter of kind of partisan politics? Uh, I mean, I think that it's kind of always uh, partisan politics in, in Texas, at least at the state level when it comes to, you know, a lot of those issues um, because, um, you know, not to say that it's only Republicans that are beholden to the fossil fuel industry. There are Democrats that are as well. Um, but, um, you know, I think I think that's a challenge either way. So, you know, I, I, I remain hopeful that the Biden administration will, you know, uphold the many promises made to kind of roll back all of the damage that is, has been done by the Trump administration. And, um, you know, frankly, like we need, we need swifter action than we've seen so far because people are suffering on the ground and our climate crisis is getting out of control. And, you know, frankly, we just don't have time to wait. So um, I think that whether the Biden administration goes slow or fast, uh, it doesn't it doesn't change the politics all that much in Texas. That's what I've seen is that hmm. you might as well go all the way because those who oppose are going to message as if you are hmm. doing something totally crazy just by trying to protect people's, you know, basic health, whether you, you know, whether you do something small or you do something big. Hmm. So you might as well do something big that actually helps people and you know, you'll get the same, you'll get the same, you know, kind of negative talking points on, on Fox News either way. All right. Well, um, as Kim said, I, I could, I, I have, you know, just so many questions to ask you. So I think this was a really um, rich conversation. We are coming up on the hour. I think we can end it here and have our own conversations at another time. But uh, thank you again, Kaiba, for coming on. Um, it was a pleasure having you on the show and uh, we really appreciated this conversation. Well, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you both. And it's so nice to know you're out there doing the work you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you for that even more than for joining this call. <laughs> we look forward to watching you going ahead. Thank you. Thank you.